0: Welcome to episode 14 Impact of Implicit Racial Bias with Clients of Color by April Tith, licensed marriage and family therapist from Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Greetings, everyone. Uh, My name is April Tith, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. As you might already know, the training content that I'm providing in this course focuses on the impact of implicit racial bias, um, primarily in mental health settings. Um, So I'd like to start off just by emphasizing that this isn't, isn't really a lecture or a training, um, but more of a discussion. It may be a one sided discussion, uh, by nature of being a podcast, but I would really encourage that as you listen to some of the topics that I go over, um, that you might want to take notes on really anything that, that triggers you, um, you know, whether that be a client situation that I bring up, a difficult topic, um, that maybe you don't um, agree with, um, you hear something that you think is a bit controversial, um, or maybe just a discussion point that you'd prefer not to think about because, um, it, it makes you feel, um, uncomfortable. Um, those are all really, um, important things to recognize within ourselves, and I'll ca- kind of get into that, um, a little bit more. Um, but again, you know, as we go over, um, this content, um, really the whole point is to be aware of, um, you know, really what our our internal process is um, as we um, kind of go through these sorts of situations when dealing um, with clients and maybe even um, in our own personal lives. Really, our, our feelings of avoidance, discomfort, anger, frustration, maybe sadness, um, they're all examples of, you know, what we often try to avoid, not just in clinical practice, um, but as I said, again, you know, also in our personal lives. And the reason that delve into um, difficult topics like implicit racial bias and cultural bias is so important is because if we don't address it for ourselves, then um, we fail to recognize, consider, and and validate uh, these feelings and struggles with our clients. So my my hope is that you as practitioners will be able to utilize um, some of these strategies um, in your own practice or work setting to engender constructive and effective discussion um, with both clients and colleagues as well as um, maybe some of your peers as well. So with that, um, I'm going to briefly describe the objectives uh, for the course. I know these um, may be stated elsewhere, but I'll kind of um, get into um, each and every uh, one of them and and elaborate um, further about why they're important. Um, So upon completing this course, um, participants uh, should be able to uh, firstly, define and distinguish between the concepts of cultural competence versus cult- cultural humility and their respective impacts within clinical interviewing and client care. I will say off the bat, um, you know, that the, there is overlap here. Again, cultural competence and cultural humility Both are, you know, constructs that have evolved, um, over the past several years. Um, generally, uh, they're, they're, they're new topics. You know, they're, they're new, um, in terms of the research, um, in terms of the implementation, um, within mental health and, uh, they're constantly changing. Um, but, but really, I want to get into a discussion about, you know, what some of the differences are, how, uh, researchers as well as clinicians, um, you know, have kind of adopted both mentalities, how we've implemented them into our practice, um, both successfully and unsuccessfully. And, and that's really the, the point here. Um, secondly, um, another objective is to define and distinguish between the concepts of bias versus implicit bias and the implications of both when working with clients, and uh, more specifically with clients of color. Um, And lastly, identifying at least one strategy for integrating um, and maintaining cultural self-awareness in clinical practice. Um, And so on that note, um, I really wanted to take a second to and again just kind of have a bit of a reflection moment and uh might be doing that uh, a couple times here just because again I I think it's so important to just be mindful and and self-aware of our own internal process um because again that is really the way to um, progress with our own cultural mindfulness. Um, and so I wanted to kind of have a moment where we stop and think about why we became practitioners in the first place, whether you are, um, a mental health therapist, whether you are, um, an educator, um, whether you are doing research of your own, whether you're in the medical field, um, to, so again, theoretically, um, A lot of people become practitioners um, because they want to help. So while it may seem unnecessary to even cover uh, this in a training, um, and again, to a certain extent, many of you um, who choose to listen to me uh, discuss this topic are probably open to strategies for reflection and personal growth, um, but I think it's important to take a moment to really ask ourselves this before we delve in. Um, Whether you're new to the helping field, whether you've been a therapist or counselor for 10 or 20 years, or whether you've, you've lost count because you're drowning in community mental health paperwork and you're only doing this because you need some ceus which is totally fine by the way um again why why do we decide to help what um makes us um continue to want to help um did you know exactly who you wanted to help going into the field that you're in um you know, was there any population that you were um, concerned with helping? You know, maybe you were already pretty aware of certain biases um, that you had, or maybe had some preconceived notions about what helping, um, you know, would be like, particularly if you're working for, um, you know, community mental health where, you know, again, typically clinicians are vastly underpaid, you know, the hours are really long, the clientele, um, and their symptomatology is, uh, extremely, extremely, um, severe at times. And so again, you know, these are all really important factors to consider, Um, because they may impact um, the day-to-day work that we do um, with our clients. And uh, definitely your implicit biases, you know, can grow and and sometimes become um, much stronger when you're feeling depleted and overworked. So, um, you know, definitely take a couple moments and, you know, jot down some some thoughts and um, things here where, um, you know, maybe you haven't, thought about this in a long time, but think about it for a second and, you know, have it in mind as as we move forward in this, um, discussion. And I know for me personally, um, I'm Cambodian-American, um, you know, my, my family, uh, they were refugees during the Khmer Rouge genocide. Um, and that has always been my sort of general, you know, go-to response anytime that question has been asked of me, maybe like in an interview for a position in terms of uh, why I was interested in mental health um, coming into this field. And it, it really took many, many years for me to, um You know, understand that, you know, there needs to be a voice for, um, not just minority populations in the field as well as clients, but also with regards to this discussion about culture and how we are integrating cultural competence, um, in the field. And I know um, for me, just not having exposure to that much um, research on it Um, you know, just, just made it so that it was something that I, I didn't feel, um, you know, I, I felt like it had been addressed as much as it could be, you know, when you're in grad school, um, you know, maybe you learn a little bit about it. Um, I was very lucky to have, um, you know, really amazing professors, um, you know, in, in my, uh, grad school, um, courses that, um, really, uh, made the topic about self-reflection. Um, and so that was something that I carried with me into my um, practice, and it it's just, it's really grown um, since then. So, you know, my hope is that, again, this is something that continues to grow, um, you know, that we can continue to be in discussion about, just because, again... There's so much, um, you know, that we don't realize, um, you know, we impact when we work with clients and it can be very concerning, um, you know, not having any sort of awareness that sometimes our own biases that we don't know we have um, are really negatively affecting um, the people that we are wanting to help the most. Okay, so now we're gonna get into discussion um, about uh, cultural competence uh, as well as cultural humility. Um, to clarify, I'm not really going to focus on just one definition each, um, you know, for these concepts, kind of like I discussed before. Um, again, rather, um, I'd like to get into a discussion about how these definitions have transformed over time um, and impacted our practice. So to start off, um, I'll provide um, some formal definitions of cultural competence presented by different agencies and literature prior to, prior to getting uh, into further explanation of the concept. Um, so for example, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, um, they define cultural competence um, essentially as the ability to interact effectively with people of different cultures um, and ensuring the needs of all community members are addressed. SAMHSA uh, then elaborates, and, and they do a really great job of outlining how cultural competence um, should be implemented systematically um, for organizations um, serving diverse populations, such as um, you know, with the continued assessment of organizational diversity and building capacity for cultural inclusion. Um, now, let's talk about what actually comes to mind for many new clinicians um, when we discuss cultural competence. So in speaking with with many new therapists, I, I found that their idea of cultural competence um, was, was much more simplistic, again, through no fault of their own. Um, it's, it's this idea that in the helping field, you know, we should do our research when it comes to working with clients of diverse backgrounds and, and be prepared to assert how quote, cultured we are or how well versed we are. Um, in the culture of another person. This perspective really stems from times where cultural considerations um, were just making their way into um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, as as you guys are probably aware, um, which continues to be a a work in progress. Um, Again, you know, for for those of you who are in the mental health field, you're probably very well versed, um, you know, in, in using the DSM, um, maybe know a little bit about um the history um you know it wasn't really um until um you know the um i can't remember which dsm addition it was. Um, but for, for example, homosexuality, as many of you may know, um, was, was in the DSM as a mental disorder and it took a lot of advocacy, um, you know, a lot of time, um, for that to be removed, which was not that long ago. Um, uh, cultural assessments again that I think it wasn't until the DSM, you know, four TR that, um, there was an outline of, um, you know, an assessment, um, there with, in relation to, um, disorders, um, in the context of cultures, uh, and, you know, the DSM-5 has since elaborated on that, but again, we are still really, 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 uh, a long, long way from, um, really finding, um, you know, some sort of, you know, policy or procedure, um, that can help us integrate, um, cultural competence into our work. There, there's really, um, nothing formal, um, that, that assists with that at this point. There's this idea that you know practice, practitioners should and, and need to be culturally competent in their practices, um, but again, little to no structure on how that should be implemented. So one strategy is that therapists were to assert cultural competent, competence in an attempt to build rapport with clients. Um, again, while the, while this strategy in and of itself isn't overtly harmful, it can be very limiting. Um, cultural competence really isn't a test of how much knowledge you have over another person's uh, culture. Um, So uh, another way to look at cultural competence um, by definition is, you know, basically a combination of one, awareness of our cultural biases, uh, two, having knowledge of the diverse cultural groups we work with in our practice and Three, acquiring the skills to assist in the common goal of advocating for clients of a diverse background. Um, so if any, any of you are familiar with, um, Drs. Darrell Wing-Sue and, and Dr. David Sue, um, they are the authors of Counseling the Culturally Diverse, um, which is a textbook that's, that's used often in, um, many classes, um, that teach multicultural counseling. Um, They provide the following definition, which is um, one that I really like. Cultural competence is the ability to engage in actions or create conditions that maximize the optimal development of client and client systems. Multicultural counseling competence is defined as the counselor's acquisition of awareness, knowledge, and the skills needed to function effectively in a pluralistic democratic society. So the ability to communicate, interact, negotiate, and intervene on behalf of clients from diverse backgrounds and on an organizational and societal level, advocating effectively to develop new theories, practices, policies, and organizational structures that are more responsive to um, all groups. Um, I actually had the opportunity to listen to um, uh, Dr. Uh, Daryl Wingsu speak definitely, you know, if, if anyone ever has the a chance, um, you know, to, to listen to him, um, it's, it's really, really amazing, you know, again, just to kind of, um, you know, read this book that, um, in, in some senses was so progressive and even more so in, in him writing it, um, back in the day, um, the discussion piece that resonated with me the most was, where Dr. Sue emphasized really how, how frustrated he was um, that the focus within clinical work is, is still on cultural competence rather than cultural humility, which we'll get into. That even if we don't mean to, clinicians tend to present themselves as experts and view cases as though our clients um, should fit into our clinical protocols and models, um, not the other way around. So, this is, you know, in, in talking about, you know, how we're defining cultural competence, this is kind of a good example of the limitations of that. Um, for those of you who have ever done um, community mental health work, know all about evidence-based practices, um, you know, all about funding issues and and how, um, again, not necessarily like through any faults of, you know, the actual um, agencies that you work for. They're very limited in terms of how we can treat, um you know, the, the clients in the community that really need our services the most. And, um, you know, some of the problems with these types of agencies is that, um, they're sort of like a, you know, we need to make people sort of fit into our model versus, Um, meeting the needs of the clients. Some programs do really well, um, you know, with the flexibility of that. But again, you know, we always have to consider, um, are we doing right by our clients in the way that we are conceptualizing them, in the way that, um, you know, we're, we're viewing them, in the way that they are adhering, um, you know, to the models that we're using. So it's just something to, uh, to think about there. And so cultural humility um, basically takes all of those definitions, you know, all the definitions of cultural competence, and essentially views it through an other-oriented lens. Um, one definition that I really like comes from the Journal of Counseling Psychology. Um, they define it as uh, cultural humility is um, basically having an interpersonal stance that is other-oriented rather than self-focused, characterized by respect and lack of superiority toward an individual's cultural background and experience. Um, so really the main difference between the lens of cultural humility and general cultural competence is that cultural humility focuses on taking a one-down approach, that we are not the experts, um, we are not the superiors. We don't expect that our clients teach us their culture, even though many clinicians assume that this is the expectation and, um, you know, they kind of newer therapists tend to go in, you know, and, and, um, you work with clients saying, okay, teach me all about uh, your background because I'm not aware of it. And, and they think in that way they're, they're being respectful and they're, um, you know, they're, they're trying, they're trying, but again, this, this takes practice, um, really cultural humility, um, means that we need to come from a place of recognizing our own internal process um, when working uh, with a client of any background um, and understand how we react to others. The question then becomes, is one more effective um, in practice than the other? Um, My answer is that I think you need both. Practitioners have an ethical responsibility to ensure cultural competence in their practice. Um, In mental health, this includes seeking supervision and guidance um, when clinicians are struggling to treat clients in culturally respectful ways. Um cultural humility is an approach that reinforces collaboration and communication between the practitioner and the client rather than directive discussion um, to understand their contextual origins and how these experiences might play into their reason for referral. So by taking a one-down approach, um we can be more authentic in discussions and gain um and understand more than we would by uh basically making assumptions. So how um, does all this tie into um, our own client care and um, with clinical interviewing specifically? You know, one example right off the bat um, are our phone screenings. So let's say that, um, you know, let's say you're working for an agency and you um, sometimes you have phone screenings, you have, um, you know, maybe, uh, staff that, that kind of, um, you know, screens, um, you know, clients either walking in or or calling, um, who are seeking services, basically a referral source. Um, usually, these have some sort of demographic information. Usually it'll say, um, you know, hey, you know, client is uh eleven year old little Johnny. Um, you know, he uh is um uh like Mexican American um blah blah blah. It'll give you like a list of information. Demographic information um is, is often provided And when it is, it it can be so helpful, but also so harmful, depending on how we use this information. Um, Again, you typically see a name, maybe an ethnicity, whether it's accurate or not, who knows, that's the other thing, right, again... Sometimes we make assumptions before even meeting the clients. Um, And then basically it'll list symptoms um, or behaviors that are listed. Maybe you're you're a clinician that does your own um, phone screenings and consultation calls. So again, um, you know, even more important to get accurate information here and really reflect on how we're using this. Um, So now we have all this information. We haven't met little Johnny yet what do our minds tend to do with that information? Um, again, this is a great segue into the discussion that we're going to have about implicit racial bias, but really take a second here and think about if, you know, if you are a therapist, um, you know, or if you're in the medical field, and again, you're seeing information on paper um, about a client, and um, you see a name, Maybe that name, um, seems like a typical American name. Maybe the name, um, you, you're making an assumption about, uh, where this person has grown up. You're making an assumption about, um, level of immigration. Maybe you're not thinking about any of this at all. But something is happening when you're looking at this name and you're looking at their ethnicity. And, you know, your brain is filtering. Your brain is, um, you know, putting things into groups as it does. Um, and so again, it's not so much about catching and developing a strategy here, um, for these types of processes, but just being aware that Sometimes we are judging even before meeting with the client or the patient that we have preconceived notions already and we want to really recognize that um, regularly so that we begin to understand how this might affect our work with them and the, the service that we're providing to them. Um, So, I'm going to briefly talk about some uh, definitions for both bias and implicit bias. Again, pretty straightforward, as most of you know. um, Bias is basically prejudice, um, you know, basically favoring or unfavoring, um, you know, maybe a person or a group. Um, Some examples of this would be, um, let's say, in terms of if we're talking about overt bias, obvious bias. Um, I, I currently do, um, a mediation for the court system and again, th- that's typically two people, right? You typically have, um, a mother and a father, um, you don't know a whole lot about them and they're talking about, um, you know, pretty difficult things in terms of, um, you know, spending and sharing time with their children, um lots of bias here lots of bias here right because you have a lot of information um and you know you're, you're you have to work really quickly in terms of sorting out the information um that is being provided to you and sometimes it's it's a lot of difficult information um to take in and depending on whether you're meeting with them conjointly or individually um you know you may have um you know bias Uh, you know, in terms of like, you know, favoring or siding with um, moms more or doing so with dads more. Um, Those are all some um, examples, but again, also kind of bleeds into implicit bias um, when you're not so aware. Um, So implicit bias is basically uh, unconscious bias. And this is essentially when the bias is outside of our own conscious awareness, this is the sort of bias that um, can become very dangerous, right? So, um, when we say things like "I'm not a racist," right? Anytime you know you ever get accused of um, being racist, a lot of people, you know that that's kind of like the go-to thing. I'm not a racist. I have friends of all sorts of backgrounds. Da da da. The thing is. We all have some sort of, um, opinion, whether we're sharing it or not, whether we're aware of it or not. Our brain is trying to group and filter information, um, all the time. It's trying to make sense of things. And so part of this discussion is, is kind of a, a challenge of, you know, can we shift Our discussion into holding ourselves accountable and being able to say, um, "I I do have biases, and I wonder if I have you know some implicit biases. I wonder if I have unconscious biases that I'm not aware of, and I wonder what that's doing in terms of my day to day life. I wonder what that's doing." in, in work, and I wonder what that's doing if I'm working in the helping field. I wanted to give some examples um, as we went into the discussion regarding the implications of bias um, when working with um, diverse clients. Uh, I know a few years ago, um, I worked with a client. He was um, a male seven-year-old. Um, very energetic. <laughs> um, very, 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 very energetic. He, um, I think originally was referred, um, by the, his school and the way that they described this little boy, I'll never forget. Um, it just, it made him sound like he was about eight, eight feet tall. Um, I know that, uh, you know, the, the principal, uh, and again, this is, you know, according to, um. Uh, the caregiver uh, indicated that he felt threatened. This this principal was actually, you know, big, six feet tall. Um, you know, I was just, I was confused. So it was very much like, okay, well you know, again, sometimes kids can be scary. Um, you know, I, I wonder, you know, what their concerns are. And, you know, they, uh, had issues with, um, you know, him having difficulty uh, regulating his temperament. Um, they felt that he was aggressive. They felt that, um, he threw tantrums, um, that he was a disruption, um, in school. And, Um, I met, um, with this client, he happened to be an African-American male, um, and I would say the most salient memories I have of, of working with him are actually the times where I would retrieve him from, um, the school office and then have to walk across the entire school basically to use a classroom in order to do, um, a therapy session. Um, it wasn't so much like the sessions that, um, I remember the most, but I think the times where there was one time in in particular where we had to walk a little bit further, and I think it just so happened to be a time, um, you know, when recess was ending, there was a lot of uh, staff outside, and... Again, like I said, he was very energetic. Um, you know, he was, um, walking along short, short little, um, you know, ledges, you know, things that, that border flower, um, pots and and things like that. And I just remember feeling as though he was completely targeted. Now, Again, this could be that because he had, um, you know, had so many behaviors previously, had been sent to the office before, he was very well known. However, at this point, you know, we had been working together um, for a few months now, and um, his act, his behaviors were actually reducing. Um, generally, he was improving. Um, I was consulting uh, with his teachers and the staff. Um, but it was really interesting to see staff, um, snapping their fingers at him. The tone that they were using with him was very demanding. Um, and I, at that moment, I think I I looked around and I saw other children that were just as energetic, that were doing similar behaviors um, and again, this is not to excuse his behaviors. So Some of his behaviors and you know, were definitely difficult, and this isn't brought up to excuse them. But, you know, I had several clients at this particular school who all exhi- exhibited similar um, behaviors in terms of frequency and intensity, similar symptomatology. And at the end of the day, um, can I really say for certain and on behalf of the client that race and the color of his skin um, had anything to do with how... Um, he was being treated, of course I can't say that, I can't prove it, but it is my duty and it's important, you know, for me, and it was important for me then to really stop and think about um, whether this was something um, that had been addressed, had it, you know, been brought up was it being taken into consideration? Was I doing a good job being culturally competent and, you know, bringing the discussion past, again, the demographic information of this is a seven-year-old African-American male exhibiting symptoms of blah, 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 blah. Um, there, There was something bigger there, you know, and... Really, it was important for me to address that, you know, with him, the family, my superiors, right? My supervisor bringing it up in clinical supervision and the staff. Um, and, and really trying to understand, okay, but why are we treating him differently? Um, especially when I had clients, um, you know, other clients who really on paper, um, were very, very similar and, I noticed that, um, you know, staff, um, treated them very differently. So again, it's not that I was needing, you know, some sort of, um, immediate solution, but I kind of just wanted to assess and see what is everyone's level of awareness? Everyone who's working with this child, you know, everyone who is involved in this child's life, everyone who plays a part in assisting this child. Um, are we providing him with the right kind of care? Are we being aware of our own biases and really understanding why we are a little bit, um, you know, more, um, I guess, you know, for some of the staff, you know, the ones that I had observed that day, um, you know, why were they, why was it okay to be more disrespectful to him, to be more aggressive towards him? And why didn't I see that, um, whenever I walked, you know, with other clients who were doing the same sorts of behaviors from, from the same staff. Um, I also worked, um, at a homeless shelter on Skid Row. For those of you that are uh, not familiar with the area, Skid Row is, um, a, a, a small area in downtown Los Angeles that um you know people are really suffering uh, uh from chronic homelessness there um there's a lot of shelters there but definitely not enough um I, I felt uh very lucky to to have experience there one of my first experiences clinically um working at a homeless shelter But just really wishing, you know, there were more housing, more resources um, for the people there. So I worked primarily with adults um, in this area, and the people were getting diagnosed with schizophrenia left and right, um, which is in and of itself a, a diagnosis that is complex and. I think the most concerning thing, and especially with this being, you know, one of the first therapy experiences I ever had, um, was that no one was ever stopping to consider, you know, that a person may have gone through, um, extreme duress, extreme trauma, extreme trauma. Um, again, the, the stories that my clients told me were just, they were indicative of multi-generational trauma and um i felt as though there was just so much there that concerned me in terms of you know not enough consideration that um you know maybe we were being too um simplistic with our um diagnostic mechanisms now what does race play um, a role in this. I, I don't know if anyone can ever prove that it does, but, um, you know, Skid Row has a significant homeless population. Um, you know, there's a lot of African-American males, a lot of people who have, um, you know, history of incarceration. Now, again, this is really where our biases come in, right? Especially, um, you know, as we discuss this, especially, um, with everything, you know, that's, that's going on, um, you know, that you see, um, in the news with, um, law enforcement, um, the release of, of body cam footage and, and things of that nature. Um, the discussion always seems to be very controversial, but, There's not enough discussion really on the history of where this comes from. Um, You know, I know that it, it seemed to be that, you know, many residents of Skid Row often had a lot of blame. Uh, placed on them for being in the position, you know, that they were in. Were in Again, chronic homelessness, um, chronic substance use, um, severe, severe mental health issues. And I remember even, you know, amongst my peers and colleagues, you know, have, getting a lot of judgment for even uh, wanting to, um, you know, do my traineeship at a homeless shelter. Um, again, you have to wonder, where do these feelings come from? Um, I would say it's really easy for people, you know, to just look at surface-level behaviors and not look at the history, right? The history of, you know, this nation being founded in racism and slavery. Um, And again, thinking about the progression over time of the treatment of um, African Americans. It's something you know, for everyone and especially for practitioners, you know, working with clients of color, um, to take this into consideration, to take the context into consideration for cultural considerations and really understand, um, the context of, of what, um, minorities and people of color, um, have to go through. And I know for me, um, being immersed in that in a clinical clinical setting um you know was was very um eye opening and i think again really having the privilege of sitting down one on one um you know with someone and hearing their story and helping them also get to an understanding of you know where they're at today and helping me get to an understanding, helping me keep myself in check, helping me, um, learn about my own biases. Again, it it was, um, it was a very, very, you know, significant time. And I think again, you know, this is, this is part of why having these ongoing discussions is really important at the end of the day, it's really hard to prove that, um, people are being treated unfairly, right? There's this idea that, um, everyone is equal. There's this idea, um, you know, that there's a colorblind approach that, um, you know, everyone has equal rights now. We have the civil rights movement, um, thusly, You know, everyone should have moved past history and and, um, all that. The problem with that, um, again, comes down to the fact that um, we can't really change our physical characteristics. And, you know, whether we like it or not, what we look like um, plays a factor, um, you know, in how we treat each other. And as clinicians, this is especially important, um, you know, because again, having our unconscious biases um, play a role in how we conceptualize our clients and how we diagnose clients um, can have serious um, implications um, for their treatment, um, serious implications for um, consultations with psychiatrists. Um, you know, and um, the prescription of medication. Another example I want to um, bring up is uh, there was a time uh, when I was working um, in, a, in a community mental health program that was very um, basically the whatever works um, policy. We had a lot of clients um, who had some pretty severe symptomatology. You know, we had 24-7 crisis call Um, I had a client who was in his mid-20s, he was an African-American male, probably at least uh, six feet tall. he, I think, had regional center services, um, was, uh, diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome, um, and I feel also, um, may have been, you know, on the autism spectrum, um, but he had a lot of multimodal, um, services, um, just for some of the, the different things, um, you know, that, that he presented with, and I remember this client the most, um, you know, in part because, uh, So he was he was residing in um, a a housing program um, for people with developmental disabilities, and um, I remember that even though he was in his mid twenties, um, you know we really spoke, um, you know, in a way um, where you know he kind of presented a lot younger, um, cognitively and emotionally. Um, you know, he had, uh, very childlike mannerisms and, um, liked t- to play around a lot. The problem was, is that there were times where, um, you know, he would, um, you know, get in trouble a lot. He would escalate. Um, he would get very angry and um, he he would be hospitalized quite frequently. I think when I started working with him, he was being hospitalized um, like over 10 times um, per year. He was being 5150. I remember that... The area that this, this client resided in, so the, the actual home, um, you know, for people with disabilities, um, that he, he lived with, it was in this very nice suburban area. And every single time, you know, I got a crisis call, I'd be like, oh, the neighbors were always out there staring at me, coming at me, trying to get information from me that was confidential. You know, I didn't, I never said who I was or, or why I was there because at the end of the day, it wasn't any of their business. Um, and again, it's not as though my client had ever done anything to them, um, but it it was almost as if, you know, some of these neighbors, you know, who happened to be, um, you know, a little bit older, you know, I got the sense that they were, um, maybe a little bit upset, you know, their houses, some of them told me they'd been there for a long time, um, it just got the sense that they didn't like that, um, there was a house, you know, in their neighborhood, and, um, I remember, you know, they would make accusations towards him, um, things where, again, they didn't even know, um, you know, if, if he had done anything, but, um, any time, you know, the, the police officers or the ambulance, um, came for him for assessment purposes um you know they they would throw the accusations out there and um again we have to ask ourselves now if he were not an african american male you know who's a really tall guy um would their reaction be the same you know would they make these accusations of, um, you know, him stealing things and and things of that nature, things that, um, you know, just, again, were, were coming out of left field, um, you know, things that they were saying to me, uh, this stranger. Um, and I saw that again and again and again, where again, I had clients who had similar symptomatology and, um, you know, the, the responses and and reactions, you know, from the community were very, very different. And so what does the research tell us? Um, You know, there's a a couple of articles that I wanted to um, refer to that um, I'll cite elsewhere, um, really focused more on studies that were done um, in in the medical field. Um, There's one... um, from the American Journal of Public Health um, entitled The Associations of Clinicians' Implicit Attitudes About Race with Medical uh, Visit Communication and Patient Ratings of Interpersonal Care. Basically, um, their research examined the associations of clinicians' implicit attitudes about race um, with visit communication and, again, patient ratings of care. Um, They concluded that uh, clinician implicit race bias and race and compliance stereotyping are associated with markers of poor visit communication and poor ratings of care, um, particularly among uh, Black Americans. Um, they talk a lot about um, bias and unconscious biases. Um, and really, again, focus on how actually there's little work that's that's examined how um, clinicians' implicit racial attitudes affect communication and patient experiences in actual medical encounters. Um, so again, just kind of... Um, you know, something to, uh, think about, you know, this was, I think, published in 2012, just not that long ago. Um, there just hasn't been a lot of, um, you know, studies in general that have, that have been conducted on this. Um, there's also another article, um, entitled Clinicians' Implicit Ethnic and Racial Bias and Perceptions of Care Among Black and, and Latino Patients. Um, what they did was investigate whether clinicians' explicit and implicit ethnic and racial biases related to Black and Latino patients' perceptions of their care in established clinical relationships. Um, and they also noted that, you know, this is one of the first studies um, to investigate clinicians' um, implicit bias and communication processes um, in ongoing clinical relationships. And, um, you know, their, their findings suggested that um, clinicians' implicit bias um, might jeopardize their clinical relationships um, with Black patients um, and could have ne- negative effects on other care processes. Um, so I think what's important in a lot of the research that's out there is that, again, this is about accountability on us as clinicians. Um, you know, these findings are actually quite Concerning because we're in the helping field. And so, you know, in thinking that, you know, we want to help underserved populations, we might actually be doing more harm by not being aware and not holding ourselves accountable um, to some of the internal processes, um, you know, that, that may be biased. So I wanted to do a visualization exercise um, just to kind of uh, get us to be able to reflect a little bit more. Um, I'm going to describe um, some features and information um, about a client uh, you know, that I had, and I just want you to sort of vis- visualize as I speak. Um, so this client is a 12-year-old male who plays baseball. Um, he exhibits difficulty focusing in class, um, difficulty refraining from talking when he's not supposed to be talking in class, um, difficulty maintaining interpersonal relationships, um, often engages in fights at school, um, difficulty, um, regulating his mood, um, so on and so forth. So first, when I mention these symptoms, did you think about a specific client maybe you've had? If so, what was the ethnic background and diagnosis that you or you know another clinician provided? And if not, what was the ethnic background of the client that you envisioned for this person? And with that person in mind, what diagnosis did your mind immediately jump to? Um, and so I bring this up because you know I've actually had um you know, several clients who, who, um, meet this criteria, but I I had two specifically, um, kind of around the same time where again, you know, both played the same sports, um, you know, pretty much the same age, pretty much, um, you know, similar behaviors and symptoms. Um, one of the clients, um, had been diagnosed with ADHD and the other client, um, was diagnosed with many things over the years, um, oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder at one point, um, intermittent explosive disorder. Um, and again, you know, the, the, um, ethnic background of, um, the second boy was African-American and, um, the first boy was not. Not to say again that, um, you know, again, there weren't other, um, confounding factors you know that contributed to um, client number two's um, diagnoses however um, it is something to take into consideration um, where again without meeting this client without me telling you um, the ethnic background of the client you know we have no visual Um, it's really interesting to see what our mind does with that and, you know, whether having that demographic information changes our diagnosis um, is, is really significant. Because from a clinical perspective, a lot of these symptoms um, are, are newer and kind of complex in and of themselves. A lot of them have in young children uh, look very similar. When you think about um, ADHD and PTSD, when you think about, let's say, for adults, bipolar disorder, um, again, not that long ago when when there was childhood bipolar disorder, um, and all these different diagnoses, a lot, uh, anxiety, depression, all of these symptoms um, in young children, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of overlap, there's a lot of commonalities, and we as clinicians have a responsibility to ensure that when we're making professional diagnoses, um, that we're really giving all of our clients a fair chance. And we're making sure that we're doing our due diligence is hard. It's hard in community mental health, for example, when you're, you sort of feel like you have to diagnose within um, 24 hours. And so you do have to make um, assumptions very quickly. But it is our ethical responsibility to go back and amend that and change that and to always be assessing if we're feeling as though, okay, now that I have, um, more information, um, I, I think I need to amend this, you know, maybe I was a little bit biased, um, in the beginning and now that I've, you know, kind of gotten to know the child and family and the context with which she lives in a little bit more, um, I think this is a more appropriate diagnosis, um. You know, the issues occur when we don't go and do that and we go along, you know, with our assumptions. And we think certain clients of certain backgrounds, you know, tend to um, exhibit certain diagnoses more. Um, again, have the conversation, seek guidance, seek supervision, question yourself, be curious, and, you know, be that person, um, you know, that. Um, does their due diligence and really wants to have that discussion over and over and over again as much as you can. Um, So lastly, I just wanted to get into um, some strategies um, to sort of help us be better clinicians and, um, you know, be more mindful um, of our cultural competency and um, cultural humility um, practices. Really, these are, are more posing questions <laughs> than anything else rather than specifically strategies. But again, that, that's kind of the point, reflect, reflect, reflect. Um, the first thing I wanna bring up again, as I've reiterated, is accountability, accountability, take accountability. Um, this is really good clinical practice for any issue. I could have handled that better. I was a little unprepared for that case. Um, I'm feeling really triggered uh, by this client and explore where that counter transference is coming from, especially if it's a first encounter and you know after the intake session, um you feel like immediately you're you've you've made judgments and maybe it's because of how they looked, maybe it's because of their ethnic and cultural background, maybe it's because of a linguistics issue, um, whatever it is you know, take accountability, because that is really where the most growth occurs, is when you take accountability for something rather than just kind of, you know, sweeping it under the rug. Um, Secondly, I would definitely encourage, um, as a strategy and practice, exploring the policies, the procedures, and, and, and any protocols of your place of employment um, you know, anything that they have to address culture. So most companies, you know, they'll, they'll cite their equal um, employment opportunity policies in some form, um, but these policies are rarely discussed or processed with employees. Um, cultural competence and cultural humility approaches are often, you know, assumed to be more of an ethical responsibility rather than a legal mandate. Um, in other words, you're not allowed to be discriminatory, but you may have no clue that you are you are discriminating or, or acting um, in a biased way. So even though um, the legal policy is there, again, remember, um, we want to take it a step further. And if we're going to be employed by any sort of um, overarching structure, we also um, want to hold, um, you know, that agency accountable as well. Um, I'd also recommend um, really conducting your own reflection practices regularly, just as we've done, you know, throughout this talk. Um, especially if you feel as though, you know, your place of employment lacks an effective system or protocol that addresses issues of cultural competence and diversity. Um, the whole point of implicit bias is that it starts from within. If you're overwhelmed at the thought of challenging an organization, remember that there are many ways to make an impact. So if you're more of a small splash person rather than, you know, someone who enjoys making big waves, making a big scene, this is your time to shine. Um, you know, you can make an impact, um, by making sure you're engaging in self-reflection, um as well as um you know asking challenging or reflective questions of your colleagues peers and and your superiors as well um you know if you're a more didactic person um you can absolutely um you know make a ripple effect here and and really um instigate change um you know some some questions to ask um you know one are my biases what are my biases in working you know with this population um you know what was happening for me internally as I was talking to this person? Um, And even if I had positive biases, right? Does my perception of this person based on their physical appearance cloud my diagnostic impression. So again, it can, it can work the other way where maybe because of a a positive bias that, um, we have or or positive stereotyping that we're doing, um, you know, we are neglecting to see, um, you know, serious diagnostic implications, um, because it's clouding our, our judgment and skewing our perception. Um, lastly, do your research. Um, you know, there's take the implicit attitudes test, the IAT, um, you know, that that's been around for a while, um, and, and question it, take it and you see what you think and, you know, identify, um, any holes that you see in the way that they, um, you know, put out the test, do whatever you can to, um, basically expose yourself more to the discussion of um, implicit bias. Um, be curious, be skeptical, find ways to integrate culture into your personal and professional discussion until it becomes the standard. You know, turn the phrase, I'm not a racist into everyone holds conscious and unconscious personal beliefs. And as practitioners, we have an ethical responsibility to ensure that we hold ourselves accountable um, in making sure that, that we, we grow awareness of these things. Uh, so that concludes um, this discussion on impact of implicit racial bias in mental health settings for practitioners. Um, I want to thank um, all of you for listening. Hope it was somewhat helpful. And again, hopefully it uh, just helped to engender some discussion for you.